Great morning, great to be part of something like this, isn't it? Just to be here to witness a day with a young life uh, dedicated to God and to... Uh, to be able to travel all this way and come and be part of this this morning too. So again, just great to see you and welcome you for being here. Now on your seat there is a bulletin. And uh, it's got all the things that are happening in the, in the weekend, the months ahead. But also on the other side of the bulletin, there is a verses should be up on the screen, but they'll also be on that outline for you. And there's various things if you want to fill those in, if that helps you do that. Uh, some of the key points that we're going to be making this morning. And there should be a pen in the seat in front of you uh, or one of the seats around you if you find those helpful. Now, the Bible teaches that God created us in his image. Little Liam here is made in God's image. Not that he looks physically like him, but that he is like him in the fact that he has uh, a spirit. He is made in his image with with the ability to think and to reason, that he is um, made in God's image and able to uh, uh, interact and to have a relationship with God and to choose eternal life and to be creative like God has created in all these different kind of ways. And God has made us in his image and made Liam in his image. But because Adam and Eve sinned, the very first human beings, way back in the Garden of Eden, sin entered into the world. And everything now we know is messed up. Everything we look around us, the world is in a mess. Each one of us has been born in sin, even little Liam here. And so we sin. It's unfortunately what just comes naturally to us. But sin also has consequences. Sin separates us from God. And sin also brings punishment because God is holy. God is uniquely holy. And God must and will punish sin. For God not to do that would be to go against his character. It's who God is. He must deal with sin. But because God loves us, each one of us, so much, he doesn't want to punish us. And instead, he's punished the Lord Jesus Christ in our place. And we sang about that just then, didn't we? That Jesus there on the cross, the wrath of God fell upon Jesus there on the cross so that we don't have to face God's wrath for our sin and our wrongdoing. God sent his one and only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to earth, to die on the cross and to take the punishment for our sins. So that if we believe in Jesus, if we turn away from our sin, if we turn in faith to him, if we thank him for what he's done on the cross for us, if we put our faith and trust in him, if we turn away from our sin, if we uh, ask him to forgive us and come and live in our lives and surrender our lives to him, make him Lord of our life, then we can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. We can have this wonderful, amazing, eternal relationship with God. And many of us here today, including Dave and Laura, many of us here today have taken that step at some point in our lives. We've, we've accepted that we are sinners, that we need God's salvation, we need God's mercy and God's grace. And so we've taken that step and given our lives to Jesus. So we've received God's mercy. We've received God's grace. God's mercy is God withholding what we deserve. God's grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. And God has withheld the punishment that we deserve and has put it on Jesus instead. And we've received God's grace. God's grace is God giving us the things that we don't deserve. And God has given us a peace with himself, a right relationship with him. He's given us forgiveness and he's given us eternal life. And so because we've received these amazing, amazing things, phenomenal things, surely the only logical and rational response is to want to, in return, give everything back to God. 
if somebody blesses you and gives you loads of great things, your inclination, isn't it, is to want to return that favor. And because God has blessed us beyond anything we can really understand, then the logical, rational response for us is to want, or should be to want, to live our lives as a response to that. To live our lives, to live lives that now please him every day. Not to try and earn his favor or to try and earn our way to heaven. We can't do that. We can't do it in our own strength. That's why we need to trust in Jesus. But having trusted in Jesus, and when we trust in Jesus, because of all that we receive from God through, through faith in Jesus, our response should be to do whatever we can to please God, to live a life that pleases God in response. And that's what the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament of the Bible, that's what he says in Romans 12, verse 1. And the verse is going to come up for you. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in view of all that God has done through sending Jesus on the cross, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, to offer our bodies, to offer our whole lives in a way that is pleasing to God. And he says, this is your spiritual act of worship. Because of God's mercy in sending the Lord Jesus to die on the cross and in forgiving my sins and in giving me eternal life, the response that I should have is to offer my body, in other words, to offer everything that I am, to God. And this, Paul says, the New Testament teaches us, will in return please God. As I offer myself as good as I'm able to do to God every day, this will please God. And I don't know about you, but after all that God's done for me, there's nothing I want to do more than to try and bring God pleasure, to try and please God with my life. I don't always do it. I often fall. I often mess up. And we give thanks then for God's forgiveness and his grace. But I want my life to be lived in a direction which is pleasing to God. I want to live a life that's pleasing to all that he's done in response to all that he's done for me. And living a life that's pleasing to God is exactly what our passage and our subject today is all about. We're working our way through a letter, a book in the New Testament. It's a letter. It was written by Paul, who was probably in, in Athens or Corinth. And he's writing to a church in Thessalonica, which is up in the north of Greece, a church that he had started uh, just sometime before he wrote the letter. And he'd gone there and he preached for three or, f- or four weeks, perhaps. And that many, many people, Jews and Gentiles, had trusted in Jesus and a new church had started. But Paul had to flee because of persecution. And so now he was writing to them and he's trying to encourage them. And he's trying to follow up on lots of the instructions and teaching that he gave them while he was with them for those few weeks. So we're going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and we're going to read verses 1 to 8. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me if you want to follow. If not, you can just listen as I read it to you. So it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're about halfway through. Paul now turns his attention to challenging the people in Thessalonica about how they should live in view of all that God has done for them. He's now kind of really getting into what it looks like to live for God. So we're uh, chapter 4, verse 1, and we're going to read through to verse 8. And so he says this, Finally, brothers, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. 
Paul starts this section that we're looking at today by saying these words. He says, finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul and his team had been with these new Christians in Thessalonica for just a few weeks, and they clearly packed in loads of Bible teaching and instruction. And the people in that church had clearly taken most of that on board. Paul says, this is what you are in fact doing. And Paul commends them for that. And the focus of this teaching and instruction was how to live to please God. And they, like many of us today, had received God's amazing grace. They trusted in Jesus and they'd received forgiveness and eternal life and a a right relationship with God. And so Paul now wants to help them to live lives that are pleasing to God in response to all that God has done for them. And all that God has given to them. And that's what God wants from us as well. God wants us to to seek to live to please him day by day. To live lives that please God. So write that on your outline this morning. That's our first point. God wants me to live a life that pleases him. That should be, if we've trusted in Jesus, God wants from the rest of my life for me to make that daily choice to live a life that pleases him. Write that on your outline. Not to try and earn our way to heaven. This isn't about, if I do enough good things today, this might help me get to heaven. This is about trusting in Jesus. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and turn away from all our sin, we make that choice to surrender to Jesus and ask him to be Lord of our lives. We receive eternal life. We receive forgiveness. We can't earn these things. We can't get that by doing good things. But having received it, if we put our trust in Jesus, because we've received that, the response should be to try to live lives that please him day by day. So what does it look like then? What does this look like in in action day by day? What does it look like to actually please God, to to live a life that pleases God? Well, Paul goes on to say this. He said, it's God's will that you should be sanctified. It's God's will for our lives that we should be sanctified. Being sanctified is the way that our lives will be pleasing to God. And I'm going to explain what sanctified it means in a minute. But write this down firstly. If I want to please God, I need to be sanctified. That's how we please God. So firstly, we need to live lives that please God. The way we do that, Paul says, is by being sanctified. If I want to please God, I need to be sanctified. But what, does it, what on earth does it mean to be sanctified? It's not a word that we use every day, is it? It, it is an English word, but it's not one that crops up in many conversations I've ever had anyway. Well, the English word sanctified, it's a translation of the Greek word hagiasmos, and the New Testament of the Bible was written in Greek, okay? So this is a translation of a Greek word, hagiasmos, and we've translated it as sanctified. And it basically means this. It means choosing to turn away from sin and live God's way. That's what sanctified means. It means to choose to turn away from sin on a daily basis and live God's way instead of living my old way. It means living a holy and a pure life setting myself apart from sin and setting myself to be devoted to God. That's effectively what sanctified means or sanctification means. So sanctification is the ongoing process of turning away from sin and living for God. And this pleases God. When we turn away from the thing that he hates, which is sin, and we attempt uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit to live a life that pleases him, Obviously, that pleases him, and that is called sanctification. It's a process that began the moment that we surrendered our lives to Jesus, and it's made possible by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we put our faith and trust in him, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, comes to live within us. And he then gives us the power and the desire to do this. We don't always uh, follow his 
desires that he gives us. We often choose our own way. We often choose to live uh, ways that aren't pleasing to God. But it's the Holy Spirit that creates that new desire in us to now want to live in a way that pleases God. The Holy Spirit gives us that desire, but actually it's up to us to make that choice each day to do this. It's not an automatic thing. It's not a given that just because the Holy Spirit lives in me and prompts me and gives me those desires that I'm going to do it. I have to make a choice. We all have that daily choice of will I follow the prompting of the Holy Spirit and what the Bible teaches or will I go my own way? Choices about our work, how we behave and function at work. Choices about our money, what we do with our money and how we we handle our our possessions. Choices about our relationships. Is is God going to be at the center of of the relationships that we have? Friendships, marriages, uh, different kinds of relationships. Choices about what we do with our time. Will God be at the center of those? Will we live holy lives, lives that are constantly turning away from sin and turning to God? Choices that are driven by this question, will this be pleasing to God? And if we use that question in every moment of our day, is this next thing I'm about to do, is this pleasing to God or not? That will make the world a difference. That makes a transforming effect in our lives. And every time we choose a course of action that will please God, our sanctification increases. We increasingly turn away from sin and live a holy life that is devoted to God. Now, in this particular passage, Paul focuses on a specific area of life that is massively important and is really right at the core of what it means to be human, or or partly what it means to be human. And it's an area of life that is a huge, massive deal for most people, our sexual behavior. Paul writes this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. So this sanctification, this ongoing process of turning away from sin and and living a life that pleases God, Paul now specifically focuses on the area of sexual uh, living, of sexual morality. Being sanctified, living a life that's pleasing to God involves turning away from sexual immorality and it it involves living a life of sexual purity. Paul uses the word avoid, but it doesn't just mean kind of, you know, uh, this is a preferable course of action, but it's not that big a deal. When he says avoid, he means avoid it like the plague. Avoid it like you would avoid walking near the edge of a cliff. This is something to go nowhere near. In fact, in elsewhere, in a verse we're going to look at later, he says flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it. Do everything you can to go anywhere, uh, as, as far away as you can from it. So if we're to please God in this area of our sexual, Uh, our sexual identity and our lives and so on, we need to completely turn away from sexual immorality. But what does he mean by the phrase sexual immorality? We need to define that. Well, the phrase sexual immorality is translated from the Greek word pornea. And this word is used to describe any sexual activity outside of the marriage of a man and a woman. That is what that Greek word means. It defines any sexual activity outside the marriage of a man or a woman, a man and a woman. The Bible says that God created mankind as male and as female, and that when they're brought together in marriage, they become one flesh. And Jesus uses this same phrase when he's asked about marriage. And that becoming one flesh is partly symbolized and and acted out and carried out by the act of having sex. And that becoming one flesh, or having become one flesh, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, are spiritually joined together, not just physically, but the physical speaks of a spiritual reality where they are joined together spiritually until death brings an end to that marriage. That's why when our marriage vows, we say, until death do us part. And any sexual activity outside of that marriage, whether it's before that marriage or beyond that marriage, 
with somebody else during that marriage is sinful. It's sexual immorality, and that's this word Greek, this Greek word ponia. Sex is a wonderful, amazing gift that God has given to humanity, but he's given it to take place within the form of a marriage of a man and a woman. But why is sex such a big deal? People sometimes accuse Christians of always going on about sexual sin or, or, or being anti-sex or, or, or focusing on sexual sin and not focusing on other sins. Well, the reason that sex is such a big deal, actually, is because the Bible says it's such a big deal because it's, it, it, it's intrinsically kind of at the center of what it means to be human. Why does the Bible then make such a big deal about sex and sexual sin? Well, on a practical level, Sexual sin causes all sorts of damage. Now, society will try and tell us just, you know, live and let live, and, 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 and if it feels good, do it, and all of that kind of thing. But the reality, the real reality with sexual sin is that it causes all kinds of damage, physical damage, emotional damage, and spiritual damage to those who participate in it. Sexual sin really does wreck lives. It really does wreck lives. It never ends well. Sexual sin never ends well. But there are two other reasons, deep reasons that run throughout the Bible that I want us to uh, briefly focus on. The first is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18 to 20. And Paul writes these words in that passage. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The Bible says that there is something uniquely defiling to the human body about sexual immorality in a way that makes it different to other sins. The Bible teaches that, that sexual sin is unique and different to other sins. The Bible teaches that when a man and a woman has, uh, have sex, they forge a bodily union. They are acting out the coming back together again of of uh, Eve when she was taken from Adam, it, she was made from his rib, and as, and as the woman comes back, she's kind of acting out uh, that, that joining back together. And right back in Genesis 2, uh, Moses, as he writes about Genesis, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his parents and the two will be joined together and they will become one flesh. So the sexual act is a physical act, but like baptism and like communion, it's a physical act, but it also is deeply spiritual. Sex is never just sex. Sex is a physical and a spiritual act that joins two people together in a mystical way, in a spiritual way. It doesn't matter how participants view what they're engaged in. The reality is, and the important thing is, is how God sees that. And this is how God sees it. And Paul goes on to say in the very next verse that when somebody gives their life to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives with them, that their body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. God supernaturally lives within a Christian by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so when a Christian believer defiles his body through participating in sexual immorality, it, which uniquely happens through sexual immorality, Paul says, it would seem that the Holy Spirit takes special and unique offense. Now, this doesn't mean that non-Christians who, of course, don't have the Holy Spirit living in them according to the Bible are freer to participate in sexual immorality. But what it does mean is that the believer, the Christian believer, the follower of Jesus should have an even higher standard than the non-believer because Paul says we are no longer free to live as we wish. We're not our own, says Paul. We were bought at a price and that price was Jesus dying there on the cross. He was the one who made it possible for us to be saved and forgiven and have eternal life. Therefore, my body does no longer belong to me. 
because I've trusted in Jesus. I'm now his and I need to honor God with my body in every aspect of life, but especially in this area of sexual morality. For the Holy Spirit to come and live within me and give me eternal life, it cost me the death of the Lord Jesus or it cost the death of the Lord Jesus. And so I need, we need to honor God with our bodies in response to what he's done for us. But there's a second reason that runs right throughout the whole Bible. The concept of a man and a woman becoming one flesh doesn't just exist at a human, physical, and spiritual level. Right the way throughout the Bible, the example of a husband and wife in sexual union is used to speak of something higher and greater and bigger. It's used to speak of the love relationship between God and his people, between Jesus and the church. And the church is just, the church is not a building. Church is just all of those who throughout history have trusted in Jesus. And so human love, sexual love especially, is used in the Bible as a picture of this wonderful relationship between God and his people, between Jesus and his church. And that's one of the reasons why gender matters. A a clear distinction was made right back at the beginning by the God who made us all. Gender isn't a social construct, it's a divine one. God created mankind as male and female. Men and women are not the same. They are designed to be sexually complementary. And the deepest reason for this difference is to teach us the deeply passionate nature of God's love for us. God made us sexual beings. As men and women with a desire for union, precisely to tell the story of his love for us. And in the biblical view, the fulfillment of love between the sexes is the great foreshadowing of something quite literally out of this world, the infinite bliss and ecstasy that awaits those who trusted in Jesus when they are with Jesus forever in heaven. And in the Bible, God seems to take, to deliberately take and use sexual language, and you'll find this right throughout the Bible. God deliberately takes and uses sexual language that he knows will effectively communicate with us as sexual beings to demonstrate the full power of his love for us. And the physical and spiritual unity that takes place when a husband and wife have sex are a picture of the eternal unity that exists between God and those who've given their lives to him. The Bible starts with marriage right back in Genesis. And the Bible ends with a marriage when all those who've trusted in Jesus are are, are, uh, at this big feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so using this marriage imagery right throughout the Bible, the Bible refers to Jesus as the bridegroom who laid down his life for the bride that he loved. And, And we, those who've trusted in Jesus, are the bride he's loved. So the Bible uses this imagery of of marriage and of sexual relationship within marriage to speak of something bigger and better, to speak of the relationship between Jesus who loved us so much that he came and died for us, laid down his life for his bride. And having died for us, the Bible says he washes us clean and then dresses us in in, in white, just like a bride is dressed. So the Bible uses this picture right the way throughout the Bible. And when Paul deals with marriage in the book of Ephesians, he states that human husbands are to model themselves on the way in which Jesus sacrificially gave himself for the church, his bride. And wives, in turn, it says, are to submit to their husbands just as the church submits to its bridegroom, to Jesus. And so intertwined in the two relationships in his, are the two relationships in his theology that Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, which is the first uh, description of marriage. And he sees it as applying not only to human marriage, but also to the marriage of God's son to God's people. And the Bible culminates in what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the lamb. The lamb's just a name that's given to Jesus, referring to him dying sacrificially uh, on the cross. 
And the marriage supper of the Lamb is, is what the Bible calls this, this great moment at the end of time when God's people come to be with Jesus forever and a great celebration in heaven. And they live for all eternity in perfect unity, just as in human marriage, a married couple are intended to. So sex in the marriage of a man and a woman is a physical and a spiritual act that speaks of a greater and an eternal relationship, namely of that of God and his people. And so when we misuse sex in any way at all, we abuse not only the symbol of divine things, but we actually abuse God himself. Sexual sin is a denial of the pattern and the symbolism that God created in human marriage that was to speak of himself and his people. And it's a gross distortion of both the symbolism and also that which the symbolism speaks of. And that's why Paul focuses on turning away from sexual sin as a way to please God in this letter in the church in Thessalonica. And so he writes this, it's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. If we're to please God, then we need to learn to control our bodies in a way that's holy and honorable, not in a kind of uncontrolled lust. Paul says that we're not to be like the heathen who don't know God. And he was simply referring to all those in the city of Thessalonica who lived who didn't serve Jesus, who didn't live for Jesus. But the culture at that time, this church was living in a culture where pretty much everybody else in that city would have been uh, involved in some kind of pagan worship in different temples in the city. And right at the heart of most of those religious systems were sexually immoral practices, often involving temple prostitution. And these new Christians had once been deeply involved in that. In fact, Paul says, you turn from idols to serve the true and living God. So they had been deeply immersed, and this was a whole part of their identity. Now they turned away from that, and they were trusting in Jesus, and they were being called to, turn, to continue to turn away from it, and instead to live pure lives that please God. Now this verse can be translated differently. So instead of learning to control his own body, it can be translated to read that a man should learn to live with his own wife or learn to acquire a wife. Now I haven't got time to go into why it can be translated in these both ways. But actually, the outcome is the same. Whether this means I should control my own body or whether it means I should invest my sexual energy in my marriage, the outcome is the same because both are true. God wants each one of us to be sexually pure. And whether we're married or not, write this down, God wants us to guard and protect marriages from sexual sin. So whether you are married, whether you are single, whatever your state today, God wants us to guard and protect marriages from sexual sin. If you are married, then God wants you to guard your own marriage from sexual sin. And if you're not married, then God wants you to guard other marriages from sexual sin. And that means that we all have to give great and careful thought to how we conduct ourselves, how we behave towards members of the opposite sex, whether they are married or whether they're single. And so Paul says, and in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you got to be so careful that we don't put ourselves into situations where we might be tempted to sin sexually and we need to give great respect to other people's marriages and so Paul brings this section of his letter to an end by saying for God did not call us to be impure but to live a holy life that's what sanctification means therefore he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God who gives you his holy spirit the life God is calling us to lead is a holy life in every area of life, in this passage, he chooses to focus in on the whole issue of our, of our sexual behavior. But it's true in every area of our life. 
And if we lead a holy life, then we'll be leading lives that are pleasing to God. And surely all of us want to live lives that please God, don't we? Isn't that our heart's desire? I want to stand before God when he comes again, when Jesus comes again, or, or if I've died and gone to be with him, and for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We want God to be pleased with the way we've lived. We want to please God in response to all that he's done for us. And Paul makes clear that these aren't man-made rules that we can kind of take or leave. To live a sexually pure life is to be obedient to God himself. But God has enabled us to do this. This is not an impossible task. It might sometimes feel like it for some of us. Sexual purity isn't easy. It's a constant battle. And you might not struggle with it, but please don't be smug and judgmental against those who do. Because many people, this is a daily constant struggle. And don't be smug and, and judgmental if you don't struggle with this. Sexual purity is incredibly difficult, but God has given us his Holy Spirit. So we have the power, we have that desire within us to live this way, but we have to make that daily choice to live for God. This morning, if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then can I encourage you to do so? Just like a bridegroom loves his bride, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you with a passion. And Jesus loved you so much that he came from heaven to earth And he died on a cross and he absorbed and he took all of the wrath of our holy God so that you wouldn't have to. But the way in which you get the benefit of that is by surrendering your life to him and trusting in him. It's not an automatic thing that we just receive. We have to trust in Jesus so that you can become part of that great relationship with God and his people. Jesus loves you. Gave his life for you on that cross so that you could be forgiven and that you could receive eternal life. And if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, then I would encourage you this morning to just take that step and ask Jesus into your life. This morning, if, if, if you're someone who's trusted in Jesus, but you are engaged in some sort of sexual sin, now is the time to stop and to repent and to get right with God. Maybe you're someone who really struggles with sexual temptation. Perhaps that temptation focuses on another person in your life, someone that you work with or that you interact with on a, a regular basis then can I challenge you? You know, the best way to deal with temptations is to get them out in the open. Not for everyone to see, but get alongside a trusted friend or one of the elders or one of the elders' wives or someone that you respect and trust and, 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 and confess your sins to one another, the Bible says. And when something's brought out in the open, then we can hold each other accountable so that we live holy lives. If you struggle with pornography, and, and according to research, 50% of men and 30% of women in churches just like this struggle with internet pornography, or if you just don't want to be tempted, then I've put some internet accountability websites on your outline. I have this software on all my electronic devices because I don't want to fall in this area. I don't want to be tempted in this area. And Keith, one of the other leaders in this church, gets a copy of everything that I look at on the internet. It's a way of holding ourselves accountable to one another because we want to live for Jesus. We don't want to be tempted. We don't want to fall in these kind of areas in our lives. Maybe there's something else in your life that this morning the Holy Spirit has been speaking to you about maybe not in sexual purity but just in a general area of your life where you're not living to please God can I encourage you to repent of that this morning commit yourself once again to God to be sanctified to be living a life that's pleasing to God let's just bow our heads close our eyes and let's just have a few moments of quiet and in this moment of quiet now is the opportunity for you to respond in whatever way God is prompting you to do 
It may be that you just want to pray for someone else to stay pure, or, or perhaps you're aware of another marriage that you know that there's, there's struggles in. Maybe you just want to, everything's good for you, but you want to pray for someone else who you know is struggling, whatever it might be, ourselves or somebody else. Let's just bring our hearts to God right now in prayer, in silence before God. Father, we thank you for your wonderful love for us. Thank you that the Lord Jesus loved us like a a husband loves his bride and laid down his life for us. We thank you that we have been given eternal life and forgiveness and been made right with you. Help us to live now lives in response to you that are pleasing to you. Father, I pray for every single one of us here this morning to live lives that are are sanctified lives, lives that are set apart from sin, lives that are devoted to you. Help us to be pure. Help us to live lives that are holy lives. Purify us, we pray. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Lucy's going to sing for us a song now, Purify My Heart. The words are going to be up on the screen. And uh, as she does so, as she sings this song to us, make this a prayer for yourself. And, and if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, then please respond if you haven't already done so. And then after Lucy's sung this through, um, she's going to sing it again and we can perhaps all join in and make this our own prayer this morning. If, if anything I've said has offended you, upset you, made you think, challenged you, brought a change in your, in your life, whatever it might be, do by all means come and talk to me. I'd be more than happy to chat with you this morning. Uh, please don't rush off afterwards. We've got church lunch to continue our celebration. Uh, but please don't go through the back yet. We'll, we'll give you a shout when the um, uh, food is ready. In fact, I think Paul's going to come and pray a bit later and just give thanks for the food. But let's just continue before God and allow his spirit to speak to us as Lucy sings for us now. Thanks, Lucy. <laughs>